0: Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And She answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child laying in bed, and the demon gone. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. Well, glad we can be here this morning, those of you who are here. Glad, if you're watching online, that you can be with us as well, and long for the day that we're all here together in person. Those from the first service, and those from the second, and those at home, and all these other places, were scattered. So uh, we look forward to that, but this morning we come to God's Word for clarity because it's only in God's word that we really understand what he is like, what he is drawing us into, the depths of his love for us, the communion that he draws us into, even with one another, and the compassion that we can have in the world. So let's go in prayer. Father, uh, you alone have the words of life. You alone have what we need. So make the good news of Jesus clear. Draw us close to you by your spirit that we might hear you this morning. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, every uh, school of thought, every philosophy, every religion asks what it it means to be a good person, what it means to be the kind of a person that everybody can approve of. And specifically, if we're talking about religion, what does it mean to be the kind of person that God would approve of? In the Western world and Western thought, occasionally we try to grapple with the idea that, well, maybe God approves of everybody. And it comes up as kind of a philosophy 101 type debate, but it doesn't take long for that to die in the realities of history. Eventually we realize there are people that do heinous things, there are people that do terrible things. It can't be that everybody is all right. So then we start to ask, what is the minimum standard? And this is what every culture in all of history has realized. There's got to be some standard of what it means to be a good person. And you can have different ones. I mentioned the show, The Good Place, a few weeks ago. And uh, at one point in that show, uh, one of the characters is giving sort of a quick test of generally whether you're a good or a bad person. And the first question is, did you ever commit a serious crime, such as murder, sexual harassment, arson, or otherwise? Fair enough. Next question. Did you ever have a vanity license plate? Next question. Did you ever reheat fish in an office microwave? Next one, and this is for all the kids of the 90s. Have you ever paid money to hear music performed by California funk rock band, the Red Hot Chili Peppers? The final one is, did you ever take off your shoes and socks on a commercial airline? You get the idea, right, that there's got to be some standard of what we, what's good and bad. And whether, of course, it is murder or reheating fish in the microwave at work, we all think there are standards. Something that separates two kinds of people, those of us and those people over there. A line that divides us and them. A line that divides two kinds of people in the world. And the problem is, once we start to reflect on not merely the show that we put on for others, but what's going on in our own hearts and minds, the wheels come off. And then we start to deal with the idea of grace. It is, of course, a central concept in the Bible. What does it mean... To understand grace. What does it mean to come to grips with grace? Or you might even say, what does it mean to become, to be in the grip of grace? And as you can see in this morning, at least three things related to that. First, the rebuke of grace. Second, the reception of grace. And third, the root of grace. So the rebuke of grace, the reception of grace, and the root of grace. Three R's the rare time I can get the outline to work with the same letters so let's start with the rebuke last the last couple of weeks we've been reading through mark 7 and the beginning of the chapter verses 1 to 13 was a section where Jesus was challenging the religious leaders who had taken up their culturally located attitudes and practices That were somewhat based in the word, but not really. They were other things that they had added to it and had tried to impose those culturally located ideas onto the disciples. And Jesus challenged them in that way, that they had taken the traditions of men and somehow made them into the standard of good and evil. And then Jesus takes the occasion, and this is what we saw last week in verses 14 to 23, to... to, To unpack that, right? It's not just the traditions, but it's in fact not what what comes into you, the things that you do, the outward influences on you, but it's what comes out of you that really makes you evil. The heart is the location of evil. And all of that comes to a head here in a very different location. Those ideas kind of converge on this story. You see, at the beginning of this passage, Jesus takes the disciples away. He takes them north of Israelite territory. He takes them out of the Jew, primarily Jewish context and into a primarily Gentile one. The towns of Tyre and Sidon are in modern-day Lebanon. It was, in the first century, it was part of the province of Syria under the Roman Empire. And, uh, and it was the ancient Phoenician culture. Uh, these were old enemies of Israel, in other words. And, of course, the, the narrator goes out of the, his way to tell us that this is a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician. We're actually told in, in the parallel passage in Matthew that the disciples try to get her away, try to shoo her out, try to get rid of her. The irony, of course, is that at the beginning of the chapter, they were the ones who were considered defiled. They were the ones that the religious leaders of Israel were, were saying are unclean. But now that they find themselves in the position to see someone else as unclean, they want nothing to do with her. Faced with this Gentile woman and her daughter in need, they got no heart for her. And this gets right to the heart of prejudice. See, we desire boundaries between who is good and evil. We like to draw that line between us and them. We kind of prefer actually the most overt lines. We kind of like when we can draw the line based on something that's easily observable. I mean, no wonder race is so prominent, a form of prejudice. Because if I can just judge you by the color of your skin, that's really easy. We, we do it, though, in a lot of covert ways. You know, we can talk about people's skin color. We can talk about how much money they have. We can talk about any other way to divide things up. But we also talk about, and this is the more covert way, the cultural products they produce. So you may not be comfortable admitting, maybe even to yourself, your thoughts about race. But you might not like what others produce in their music. You might think it's silly or trite or even evil. You might not like the way that they dress. You might not like the way that they behave in public. Are they too loud? Are they too reserved? Are they too orderly? Are they too informal? We love to talk about those distinctions. We love to think that way about it. And here we can see that then prejudice, and this is so, so important for Christians to understand, that prejudice is deeply intertwined with legalism. It's deeply intertwined with that desire to see myself as good. I mean, legalism, we use moral categories, right? But in prejudice, we draw cultural, traditional, even gender and racial lines to draw a moral distinction. And there's obviously lots of illustrations, but I can give you one of my own life. When Adrian and I went to seminary, we, were, uh, we got involved in the church. The pastor was a Korean-American man. The church was a majority Asian-American. It was, it was still a real cross-cultural church. There were other folks there. We weren't the only white people there, by any stretch of the imagination. But it was culturally a more Asian church. And that was really helpful for us in the long run to actually be in a context where we were the minority. Um, but a few weeks into going to this church, we really liked it. We were excited about it. And, uh, and one of the babies was getting baptized. And, you know, at first, everything was going down the, the script, the perfect script as I understood it for a Presbyterian church. The pastor walked up. Somebody else walked up with a bowl. It was one of the elders or something. <laughs> Walked up with the bowl. They call the family up. The parents come up with their baby. Everything's going exactly as, I pl- as I'm thinking. And as soon as the pastor starts talking, like six or eight people get up. Like just stand up and walk down the aisle and they're standing up and they're taking pictures and it's flashing and there's all, there's all this commotion going on all around this family. And, uh, and look, if you've grown up in a white church, this is not how it's done. Because the moment that you have a baptism in a white church, everybody gets super still. This is a sacrament. We're not supposed to move. There's, some, there's, usually, there's sometimes some aunt or uncle who's trying to make it to the front row to take a picture, and you would think they're on like a covert mission. You know, they're ducking down, squatting down, trying to, you know, practically army crawling their way down the aisle in order to avoid being seen. Yeah, but this there was all there was all this commotion, all these pictures being taken. It was, it was, I didn't know what to make of it. And in fact, here's what happened. I started to think almost immediately. That's really disrespectful. And you see what was happening, don't you? They celebrated the sacrament a slightly different way than I understood. By the way, none of that has anything to do theologically with what we teach about baptism. But it was a slightly different way of handling it. And I immediately made it a moral issue. It's immediately where my heart went. Now, in the long run, I came to actually really love baptisms at that church. Because the baptism was actually a celebration which it kind of ought to be, right? (laughs) Um, I came to love that, but my first instinct was all wrong. It was immediately to judge the hearts of those people. Now, this is not the passage. Obviously, we're talking about crossing cultural lines here. This is not the passage to prove that the Bible celebrates the beauties of all cultures. There are other passages that talk about that. The call to Abraham, right, is that he would call this family out to be a nation that would bless all the other nations. There's all this stuff in the prophets about the nations being gathered to Israel and bringing in the riches of their culture and society. There is, you know, Jesus sending out the disciples to, to, to make disciples of all the nations. There's Revelation 7. At the, at the end of time, right, God is gathering His people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, right? The beauties of all their cultures are being brought to bear. That is a biblical truth, but it isn't the one being brought home here. Instead, what Jesus is saying is, don't, what this Bible passage is teaching us is, don't think of yourself in your culture as better than others. It's a little bit like what he taught about removing the plank from your own eye instead of of trying to remove or before you try to remove a speck from another person's. Written large in cultural terms. This is, in other words, a call for us to focus on our own problems first. Not to be so concerned about how messed up others and other cultures are. The cause of our alienation from God is not our cultural existence; it is not the identity, our identity in terms of our racial, ethnic background. It's not our identity in terms of our economic background. That is not the primary cause of our issues with God. Our issues with God are not that we're Phoenician, or not even like the disciples that they were Jewish. It is not that. We are white or black or American or some other, you know, from some other place. Our problems are with our fallen state and our sinful hearts. And that may work out corporately in different groups, in different ways. But the point is, look at yourself first. Look at your own community first. Don't try to remove the plank from somebody the, the speck from somebody else's eye. Well, you got a plank sticking out of your own face. The thing about grace is it exposes all of those pretensions to goodness. The disciples, their pretensions to goodness are exposed in this whole story. In this whole, they began this, path, this chapter being the ones who were defiled, and the minute that they could look down somebody else, they did it. But that is not the way of grace. It rebukes that whole way of thinking. Notice this, though. Grace has to also be received. Think about this woman and what she goes through. She comes in, immediately falls at Jesus' feet, and starts to beg. Verses 25 and 26. This is a helpless posture. She is not coming in anger or in pretense or presumption. She's not coming in pride, but in humility. And then we get into that awkward conversation in verses 27 and 28. This is tough. Now, we're going we're gonna to think about what's going on with Jesus in a minute and why he takes this direction. But let's not sugarcoat it. Jesus has tough, tough words for her. He compares her and her children to dogs. And again, every culture for all of time, except for like, Middle and upper middle class white people in America. Everybody else, and for all of history, has known that dogs are gross. I like dogs. Dogs are really fun. I I mean, they can be really cute. There's all these other things that are great about dogs, but they're also gross. And everybody has always known it. You have to train gross behavior out of dogs, right? And if you let up, they go back to all the gross behaviors. They will do gross things. That this this is why it's an insult. This is why it's still an insult. And even though we don't want to admit it about our dog, some of you will admit about your dog. But a lot of people don't want to admit about their dog. It is still the truth, right? So this is not, I mean, this is an insult buried here. I mean, let's, let's make no mistake about that. But notice how she responds. She doesn't say, Stop. Oh, wait a minute, before we go on, let me correct the record. No. Instead, she takes Jesus' comparison and pushes it further. As if to say, fine, if you want to talk about me that way, then you know that even the dogs get the scraps from the table. If you're going to do all of this for Israel, if you're going to perform all these miracles, don't we get... Something from the table? I mean, her child is suffering. See, she is desperate. And desperation is really at the heart of faith. At least faith as we talk about it in the Bible. Faith in Jesus. Desperation is right at the heart of it. And we're not good at assessing our need. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect, but uh, there are a couple of psychologists that it's named after. Uh, these psychologists have done studies where they have people do, take tests or do different tasks, and then they ask them afterwards, how do you think you did? And the people that do the worst generally think they did pretty well. So they do, they do it with students, right? And it's the students that are getting the Ds and Fs that think they're like B students. I think they, they, they pretty much got it. You know, like we, we did pretty well. Did this. The thing is we're bad, the, and all it proves, right, is that we're bad at assessing ourselves. So this is, one, this is what David Dunning, one of those psychologists, what he says. An ignorant mind is precisely not a spotless empty vessel, but one that's filled with the clutter of irrelevant or misleading life experiences, theories, facts, intuitions, strategies, algorithms, heuristics, metaphors, and hunches that regrettably have the look and feel of useful and accurate knowledge. And he goes on, he says, the most difficult misconceptions to dispel are those that reflect sacrosanct beliefs. In other words, things that are, you know, at the core of sort of who we think we are in the world. And the truth is that Often these notions can't be changed. Calling a sacrosanct belief into question calls the entire self into question. But that is precisely what faith is like in the Bible. You might say that's why faith is rare. But it's also exactly what this woman brings to the table is she has dispelled the idea of what she has. She does not think of herself as better than them. She's willing to beg. She's willing to follow an insulting metaphor to its logical end because she knows she's desperate for what Jesus has. The old theologians would call this self-abasement. Self-abasement isn't self-abuse. Self-abuse, of course is saying that is denying that anybody else would love you or care about you. Self-abasement makes us, therefore, because we don't, we don't have that or we don't think we can have that, it makes us jealous of others and the things that they have and their abilities. But self-abasement, rather, is about losing ourselves at the center. It's about understanding that God is really at the center and that my life is simply a satellite around what he is doing. That I'm defined in terms of what God is doing. And instead of making us jealous, it makes us more compassionate and understanding. Instead of making us more resentful of other people groups, it opens our heart to them. Because we don't have anything to prove. You see, comparative righteousness is always our greatest problem with faith. We'd love to think about ourselves in contrast to others. Well, at least I'm not like that person. At least I don't forget my mask like that other person does all the time. At least I can go out in public and... Not freak out like all these other people. You get the point, right? But of course we do that not only with our individual identity, we do it with the groups in which we're associated. Of course we can think about race and ethnicity, right? We can think about it in terms of our economic standing, right? At least I'm not like those people. We can think about it in terms of our political identities. We can think about it in any host of different ways, right? We love a good comparative righteousness, but of course that is where faith dies. Because faith teaches us to see that none of that matters. That God is singularly unimpressed by all of those forms of righteousness. God doesn't care. Oh, you were slightly better than that other person at that one thing? Really? That's what you're going to bring me? But Jesus, of course, isn't sarcastic like that. Instead, he's loving. He's not impressed. But he's loving. He's good. And... You see, when we receive faith this way, it actually helps us deal with even our own moment in time, the own unrest that we have, right? You see, we can, it actually strengthens us to deal with justice. Because if you're trying to deal with questions about how other people in other cultures are are living their lives, if you're even trying to cross black and white lines in America, right, and you're still trying to justify your existence, of course you'll be defensive. Of course you won't know how to make sense out of that. Of course you'll have a hard time actually standing up and speaking up, right? And this woman isn't allowing abuse to go on, right? She's identifying the main cause, She's identifying the sinful world in which she lives and the deepest problem she can see for the time being, right? Her daughter suffering from a demonic possession, right? She is seeking a king who would bring justice, who would drive out what is evil. And that kind of grace gives us greater confidence and humility as we engage those kind of conversations As we seek to take action, whatever it is we're trying to do to pursue goodness, we're freed up to actually pursue it because we're not trying to justify ourselves. And notice this it does that on the one hand, it also teaches us at the same time not to be self righteous about the justice we're pursuing. And you know what I'm talking about. You know that, you know, there's. There's always that person whose story, you know, the last couple weeks on Instagram is just like cranking through all the resources, and all that stuff's probably fine, right? But you can't keep up with that. There's always a kind of performative side in the modern world to being on the right side of history. That is to say, and that performative side always comes from a self-righteous place, Because I've got to prove that I'm the right person, that I'm a good person, that I'm on the right side of this thing. I got news for you. If that's going on, you're still trying to prove something. And God's grace frees us even from that. God's grace comes to those who know they've got nothing left to bring to God. That is a challenge of coming to faith, is embracing that reality. But what matters most then is the root of grace. The root of grace, of course, is Jesus. So we should probably talk about what Jesus says here. Is he being cruel? Uh, you know depending on the commentator's uh, disposition. Some of them would say something like that. But there are a number of factors going on. For one thing, Jesus is certainly giving voice to what would have been a common first century Israelite way of thinking. He, he's using the terminology that they would have used. Josephus, one of the ancient historians in the first century, you know, talked about the Phoenicians as one of their bitterest enemies. So Jesus is giving voice to the way that his people would have thought of others. There's also a context in in the ancient Mediterranean world where there are a lot of miracle workers wandering around, and especially in the eastern Mediterranean. And Look, from a scientific standpoint, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if there's real demonic forces doing things. I don't know if these guys are all just you know, pulling the wool over people's eyes. I have no idea. I can't necessarily make any sense. But no doubt, Jesus is partly concerned that this woman not just merely see him as a miracle worker that can just give the thing she wants. All that is to say he's trying to engage her, right? And again, if we have the, the passage, from, the similar passage in Matthew in mind, you know, remember the disciples are trying to push her out and Jesus doesn't allow them to, right? He's trying to engage her. So I think then what what we ought to actually understand Jesus doing, and this is dicey, okay? This is Jesus. Jesus can read minds. Jesus can do all these other things. I don't think this is exactly the way you ought to handle cross-cultural conversations. But the heart of what Jesus is saying is this. You know how we talk about you. Meaning my people, right? You know how my people talk about you. Why are you here? What is it you really want? He's trying to draw out her heart. Granted, in a way that I don't know, I don't think all of us have license to do. (laughs) But he is successful at it. Jesus accomplishes what he's looking for. He's looking for her heart. So in verse 29, when he says, for this statement, meaning what she said back to him, for this statement, you'll receive what you want. He's not saying, because you found the right formulation of an answer, you're going to get what you want. No, he's saying, because your heart is in the right place. Because you're coming to me in faith. Because you're coming not with what you have, but merely coming for what I can offer. Your child is healed. See, Jesus is trying to get to the heart of it. What matters always with faith is not merely that you generically have faith, but what you have faith in. Is the thing that you have faith in actually faithful? I mean, think about it. The, uh, I don't know what she thought of Israelites otherwise. Quite frankly, I don't know why she would have a good reason to think that this was all going well. Now, I don't mean to obviously insult first-century Jewish people, or certainly not 21st-century Jewish people. Israel, in in many ways, should be considered, if you follow the biblical narrative, the last great hope of humanity. When everything's going wrong, God intervenes to call out Abraham. You'll be my special people. But can even they maintain that? Can they be faithful? No. No. So he gives them a law. Are they able to keep that? No. So he chooses one tribe and a king who is after his own heart out of that tribe. And are they able to keep it? No. They're not faithful. And it's one of the sad things to realize along the way, and maybe this has dawned on you, I don't know, that the whole story of the Old Testament and you follow the narrative through, is pretty bleak. I mean, there are high points along the way, and there are certainly promises of what is to come. But the story of Israel and its faithfulness to God is not a particularly encouraging story. They're not faithful. Well, there is one left who's faithful. Because Jesus is perfect where they were not. Jesus is perfect where we are not. Jesus is loving. Jesus accomplishes all of the law. If you're looking for someone who's perfect, it's Jesus. And again, if you want to come with your comparative righteousness, good luck. You want to try to hold your performance And the way you're living your life up to that, mm, you're barking up the wrong tree. And that, though, is why we can have faith. Because Jesus is faithful. Because Jesus has done everything. Because Jesus went to the cross, endured hell for you, and was raised up for you. See, it doesn't really matter if you have faith in general. Because everybody has faith in something. We have faith, like we've been saying, in our performance, in our own goodness. We have faith in all these sort of group identities that we have. Again, whether they might be racial, ethnic, they might be economic, they might be political, they might be all these different things. We might have a lot of confidence in those, but those don't cut it. They are not faithful. They will not see you through you will not be good enough. They will disappoint you. You've been disappointed by your politicians, haven't you? Like 99% of the time. You've been disappointed by your own people groups, haven't you? I mean, truth be told, we've probably been a disappointment to other people in our people groups. None of those things will do. What matters is the thing we have faith in. You know, a classic illustration is the chair. You go to sit in a chair, you've got faith that that thing's going to hold you up. Now, it might be a somewhat educated guess that it is going to be okay because it's here in the room. We gave, we gave that chair to you. It's going to collapse on you, but... If it's a a faulty chair, it's still going to collapse on you. It's the chair, right, that makes the difference, not the amount of faith you have. Or think about swimming lessons with little kids. Some of you have done this. You get them standing on the edge of the pool, and you're saying, come on, jump in. And they're scared because you're in the water, water that's deeper than their head. What you're banking on is that they know that you love them. That you have a track record of looking out for their well being, caring for them, right? That's what you're banking on. Jump to me. It'll be okay. This is what grace really is it comes to us by faith, but it is the love of Jesus. Put to work on the cross at the resurrection grace is about receiving all that god has to offer in jesus it is not about being a good person it is about receiving the goodness of jesus it's not about being the most amazing person it's about receiving the amazing grace of him it is about not being the most impressive not even being in the right groups or being in the you know having to defend your identity, it is about accepting a different identity that is bigger than all of those. It is about receiving Jesus himself on your behalf. That's what grace is. It only actually comes to those that are without it. So let's stop pretending that we deserve God's grace, but rather receive it with love, knowing that we come with nothing, but that Jesus gives us everything. Let's pray. Father, we know that the grace of Jesus is greater than we can imagine, that Jesus has more to offer than we've ever dreamed of. And yet so often, Lord, we are content to try to prove ourselves and our own self-worth. Remind us that when we come trying to prove ourselves, when we come with hands full of all of our accomplishments, we are actually coming proving that we've never really understood the grace of Jesus. Instead, Lord, teach us to come with empty hands and to receive all that he has for us. That we might love you, that we might love our neighbors with open hearts, without the need to defend ourselves or to prove ourselves, but rather to display the love of Jesus at work in us. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Amen.